This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Josh Nicholas. What you're listening to is my morning commute. Like thousands of others, maybe even you, my day generally starts on a crowded train platform, squeezing into a full train. It's not very fun. There are loads of people trying to fix this, trying to get more of us through the system quicker and more comfortably. But there's one big issue when it comes to the Sydney train network. The big problem with Sydney is that we have um, an enormous amount of people wanting to use the rail network. There's been a lot of growth in passenger numbers and we've got these two stations right at the heart of the Sydney Rail Network called Town Hall and Wynyard. And when you've got hundreds of thousands of people using them, they get incredibly crowded. And that crowding on the platforms interrupts train operations. And it does something that we call, um, it extends the dwell times, which is the amount of time that trains spend at stations. This is Michelle Zybots. She's a transport planner and director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Those two stations she's talking about, Town Hall and Vineyard, they're at the centre of something Michelle and her colleagues have been working on for a couple of years now. You see, Town Hall and Vineyard create a bottleneck. They limit how many trains can go through the entire network. So if you want to increase capacity, if you want to make everything quicker and more comfortable, you have to start there because those stations are very old and very narrow and we don't have any real options for widening those platforms. So there's been car parks built um, in the areas to either side, so we're very, very restricted. So um, big problem, big question, what do we do? How do we manage the vast numbers of people that have to get come off and get on trains at that particular point? Kind of like I can make as many four-lane highways as I want, but they eventually connect to like a one-lane road somewhere and that... Yeah, yes, it's a bit like that. So railway networks have the same sorts of problems as road networks, um, but it's less obvious because the capacities are generally bigger and we don't expect to come up against ceiling capacities. Could we just make bigger trains? Like, Is, is this something that can only be tackled in certain ways? To, we can put in new train lines, and certainly that's what the state government is planning to do. So they're going to put an entirely new line right through the, the centre of the Sydney Um, central business district Um, and it'll come out either end and there'll be new stations and and all that sort of thing but until that happens we've got to work out what to do and how to make do with our existing rail network for about seven years Mm -hmm. or possibly 10 years until that new capacity comes online so you know we're really having to stretch the system and, and squeeze everything that we possibly can so this is the big question if we can't physically alter how town hall and vineyard operate How can we get more out of what we have? If we can just get a couple of extra trains through every hour, it could have a huge impact. I mean, just think, each Sydney train can carry a thousand people. The answer has a lot to do with us, the commuters. It's all about how we behave and when and where we stand on the platform. If Michelle can change that, she could get her extra couple of trains every hour. 
So there are certain behaviours around train doors in particular where people just stand, it might be um, they stand 20 centimetres in the, the sort of the, the egress path, as we call it, or, or the, the pathway that people are walking through in order to get off the trains and go up to the stairs or escalators to get off the platforms. And sometimes people might stand in the way. And that can mean that trains are, um, people are getting off trains in single file rather than, say, two or even three abreast. So that little, little bit of behaviour that goes on around doors has an enormous impact. If you and I alter our behaviour just a little bit, if we stood out of the way to let people get off trains quickly, or we only clustered around carriages that have enough space to take us, we could shave seconds and even minutes off of each stop the train has to make, which means more trains through the system and we all get home quicker. There have been a number of different programs and experiments to try and make this happen. If you live in Sydney, you may have noticed over the past year or so a bunch of quick loading zones appearing everywhere. That's one of them. But researchers like Michelle don't really have data on how effective any of these have been. Until recently, we've not really had all that much data on actual passenger behaviour. We have data on what the trains and what the little wheel over here is doing and the mechanism over here and all those mechanical components of the system. Yeah, yeah you know, it's pretty good what we know about those, but what the, the um, there's a, a colleague of ours that calls it the wetware, you know, the people. Um, we don't, we don't really have a lot of information on the wetware. If you're trying to solve a problem like this, if you're trying to change how all of us behave, you first need to know what we are doing and then you need to know how we are responding. And that data just wasn't available to Michelle or anybody else. So it's about coordinating people. And, uh, at the mo and usually we do that through announcements and information systems. But in order to give people the right information and announcements or whatever it is that we end up doing, we need to know more about what people are actually doing. And I guess that's the next part of the story, yeah. which is um, what do operators do? You know, where, where are these problems? Where are the behaviours coming from? In, in, in a system that is so tight and so twitchy, like it's prone to very, very small changes in behaviour, can make enormous differences, which is why it's often unstable. But all of this is starting to change. Train researchers are starting to get a whole lot more data. First, because of things like the Opal card, which gives really good insight on when people are entering and exiting the network. But also because of new kinds of sensors that are being developed that allow them to capture what's happening in between. But it's not just train researchers who are seeing this. Have you ever had a question where, you know, you have all the techniques to analyze the data. You have the computer power to analyze the data. You have the know-how to analyze the data, but it just wasn't possible to collect the data. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's probably what every data scientist would fear. You know, yeah. if if you have got ev all the ducks lined up technologically, mm. but there is something prohibiting. Yeah. Look, to be honest. Um, we're in a situation like that now, actually, um, where we we are collecting some some video imagery for um, a particular project, um, and it's it's you know we've got this uh, data that we've collected from public sources just to test the algorithms, mm. and 
the requirement to get the full suite of data requires someone to go out there, deploy other special equipment to launch it and sense it and then get it back to us. And that is taking time. So yeah, it is quite possible Mm -hmm. if you want real data in very specific scenarios that um, you might be delayed. This is Professor Michael Blumenstein. He isn't part of the train project with Michelle, but he's the head of the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney, and he does a whole bunch of interesting things with data. When, when you get a new kind of sensor, do you know data geeks just go insane? Like, oh my God, I hadn't even thought of this. Imagine what I can do with this. Look, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of dimensions to the geeks getting excited. You know, I mean, there's <laughs> sure there's a sensor that's the same as we've used in the past, but put mm. in a place where no one thought of, or or that could get different data. So, that, like a wireless sensor, we could never yeah, put something there before. Yeah, yeah, right. So it could be wireless sensor or a place where you know you didn't think of you know collecting that type of data, but it's been used elsewhere for many many years. Mm. That's one way of looking at. It. The other way of looking at it is hang on, using a sensor with others as a collection of sensors and then having that capturing multiple types of information concurrently. And obviously, you know, that's exciting. Um, But then, of course, there's the whole um, new dimension of a brand new type of sensor, a sensor Mm. that... So that that's I think would escalate the excitement factor for any nerd or geek in the um, in the space of, you know, I had a video camera when I was I don't know like twelve or thirteen. Like video cameras aren't new, no. and even digital video cameras aren't new. No, but w- when it comes to making that usable, like if you're capturing tons and tons of video, you don't want to be you don't want to have you know twenty grad students sitting there for the next three months going through frame after frame of, is being able to analyze a video stream for useful information. How new is that? The concept has been around for a bit, um, particularly around when you're talking about automated processes, okay? Mm. So it's um, if someone says, all right, getting a grad student to sit down and analyze, that's your you know, you know lowest level quality <laughs> of... I mean, it's a human's time and it's very long, it's exhaustive... Um, the the person you know will get distracted. Yeah, yeah, may miss stuff. Um, you know that's you know, and and to be honest, that's still done. The novelty is the automated approach. How new is it? Well, yeah, there, there's been stuff around for a while. Probably you know, I could even say probably even up to a decade. Mm-hmm. But the quality of the um, automated automated detection of events in video is still not at a, at a level that's good enough. I was watching a video online and it was an explainer of how Snapchat's, um, you know, their filters work. You know how the ones that can put a crown on your head and those <laughs> kinds of things. Yeah. And they, they were explaining the way that, that Snapchat's, like the way the computer or your phone knows your face is there because that's yep. a really hard problem to solve. And they, they were saying that it's a really simple algorithm which they just cram through brute force. It's like... It's basically analyzing the pixels for a, a certain pattern of light and dark, which it then recognizes as a nose, that kind of thing. Is, is it that kind of stuff? Is it basically just, you know, raw grunt computer power forcing through all of these images? I think if you're looking at something like a face, right? Mm. Um, uh, good news about a, a phone is you'll, you'll usually hold it in the same way every time. It's very rarely you'll try and skew it and, or do something on purpose that doesn't, capture yeah. you in the frame properly. 
um, to or, to look at one facial image um, is is pretty reasonable. The technology is pretty much there. There is enough grunt. There is enough good algorithms out there and technology that can actually be able to capture you know one face very very well. Mm-hmm. If you had thousands of users of your phone and you wanted to, or, you know, each time, same phone, same, you know, process, but, you know, that sometimes becomes difficult if you if your friends are odd and they put on, you know, different makeup and moustaches and all, it can complicate the scenario. But even with that, the technology for one face is pretty good now. And yes, brute force will do it. The challenge is looking at video where people are moving. Um, sometimes people are far away. There's distance issues. There's sometimes granularity of uh, the v- capture, or it's dark, or it's uh, there are conditions, occlusion, people occluding other people or, or objects. That is really tough. I mean, that uh, raw grunt of technology and algorithms is not enough to sort of. Um, to, you, you need smarts. You need intelligent approaches to to really look for specific things, mm. gestures, uh, movements, um, you know, trajectories of people on the screen, that is really hard. Um, Do you think this is going to make it easier to research a lot of these questions? Like the fact that we no, we no longer have to get a guy to sit there with a clicker, we can have a video there and have an algorithm that can sort through the video. Like, is this just going to unlock a, like a new wave of kind of research in, in some of these areas? Absolutely. Look, it's already happening. I mean, I'm having people come up to me from different um, faculties, you know, where, where I work at UTS, who that you know they're saying you know health people um, people from law business they're all saying you know oh you know it would be really great if if we could harness this data this could provide us with information we've never been able to get before mm-hmm. and that's that's the power of this whole data deluge is is to say look this data is coming in no one's looked at it before in the same way um, we now have the technology to, to analyze it to to make sense of it and in all those disciplines I mentioned and more. There, there are solutions to, to be found. And um, now we've got the, the process and the technology to be able to help those areas, whether it be internally in a, in a research institution or a university or externally in industry and, and in the outside world. There are, there are problems that demand solutions and we will now unlock the data, um, whether it's provided through public means or open data through government or maybe the private sector opening up their data once in a while. You know, we will get the solutions we need because we'll have the opportunity and the ability to analyze that data for good. So really exciting. And it's not just for the technically minded, it's the people from all over mm. that tend, that will benefit from, um, from every discipline that will benefit from this, um, uh, you know, unlocking of the data. So technology is getting better with cameras and other centers allowing researchers like Michael and Michelle to collect a whole bunch of data they never could before, which allows them to ask a whole bunch of questions and track to see how their experiments play out. So Michelle and her colleagues started to think, how can they use some of this to answer their question? How can they use it to let them see what people are doing inside train networks and whether any of their ideas are having any effect on moving people? We were talking wild and loose, you know, as you do in, a, in an innovation phase, and saying, gee, what if, what if trains could be made to do more than just be trains? What if they could also, you know, monitor where passengers are and then talk to the operators to help them with managing this dwell time problem? So we were coming up with all that type of 
wild and crazy talk and we're thinking, gee, what if, if the whole train station environment could be turned into a robot and it had the, the um, uh, I'm not talking warning, warning, Dr. Smith type <laughs> robot, but uh, robots have a particular, like a structure to them. They've got particular parts that have different roles and we were thinking, well, you could put these roles in different parts and um, the sensing and perception part, that could be added to the existing sensor arrays or um, nets that are on, on trains and then the, these trains could do additional things. So it sort of was like that and then the experiments began. As you can imagine, there's a whole bunch of moving parts here. First, you have transport researchers like Michelle who want to make things more efficient. Then you've got engineers who have to build the sensors and the algorithms to understand what's happening. And then there are the train companies like Down a Rail, who have a whole bunch of useful sensors themselves and know how to build things. So all of these guys came together through a government research center called the Rail Manufacturing Cooperative Research Center to see what they could build. And they ran an experiment on a couple of train stations in Queensland. And so we, we did two, two stages of testing, collecting the data and getting insights to, to Queensland Rail to help them address the problem and on every iteration we said this is what we've got and they go wow so this is dr alan alemovich he's a senior lecturer at the uts center for autonomous systems and he built the sensors and algorithms that make the system run what alan and his colleagues built are essentially a series of cameras except they aren't normal cameras they are sort of like the gesture control sensors that a lot of high-end gaming systems now come with you know like the Wii or the Microsoft Connect, but instead of allowing you to play Wii tennis, they can track passengers on a train platform. Uh, traditionally, people use just normal cameras for surveillance, but those uh, you'd have to inspect manually to even gauge how many people are there. But the newer types of technology separate more easily people. So you, in this, um, you can easily distinguish between people. Uh, there and you can actually even determine what their orientation might be so even if they're facing towards the door or not so being on a platform doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to board the service yeah so we can gauge a, a raft amount of information just based on them and, and this is the information that wasn't available before what does the camera see so you're saying it's, it's not an individual person but what does it really see it, like, what it, is it? It, literally you collect a 3d collection of points mm -hmm. and these points fall upon your, your head and shoulders and so it looks like a silhouette. Okay. So you have these silhouettes that are of people, um, but these silhouettes are not necessarily are not just sil a sh shape silhouette. It actually is also dimension. So the, the silhouette is a true reflection of of your silhouette. Um, it's a blob. So it's a blob. Yeah, yeah it's a blob, <laughs> but the blob has dimensionality. So you know your head width, your shoulder width are all captured in that blob information. And, and that information allows us to be able to determine when a person might have gone behind another person and it will reappear. Mm -hmm. So even for periods when we don't see a particular person, we know that they're still there on the platform, but just obscured from that particular camera. So this allows us now to get more precise numbers. And so you can see like at 5.30 p.m. at Vineyard Station or whatever, yeah. hypothetically, there's two on your blobs down this end of the, of the platform that have just not gotten on the last two trains. They're obviously waiting for the next train. Like you can see stuff so like you, that. So mm -hmm. you'd be able to see at 5.30 p.m. Uh, 60 blobs of which 40 are going off the train and 20 are 
on the, on the right and left hand side of the train door mm-hmm. but you'll be able to at 5.30 and one second also determine where those blobs are in time and two seconds or three seconds later so you can get not only information that as a snapshot in time but how it evolves in time and it's that evolution that's actually important so in order for to determine whether a person will, is boarding that service we need to know whether he was standing there when the train arrived whether he's going towards the train door whether he's actually attempting to board it and then we also will know whether he's not managed to board it mm-hmm. because he, he couldn't get because onto it. too full. Mm-hmm. Too yeah. full. So, and then, then we can get all those numbers, including how many mm-hmm. people couldn't board and w- now that they're delayed and standing there. And that's what was not possible prior. So as Michael was telling us before, there have always been ways of collecting data. Even with this particular problem, if all you wanted to see were people moving through the system, you could probably collect a lot of data with just a clicker. But with video and with Alan's algorithm, you can go a lot further than that. You can get the data in real time and you can do some real experiments with it, just like Queensland Rail are starting to do. And they have a program called Pay It Forward, which they've tried to get people to kind of stand on the side of the doors. and that. So we can tell them how their behaviour is evolving as the platform density or the amount of people increases. Um, we we able to quantify the amount of people that don't uh, adhere to that and mm-hmm. actually stand in obs- obstruct traffic. We can quantify the uh, length of time people uh, sp- spend on the platform waiting for the next service. We can quantify whether people obstruct the doors by waiting for the next service and not moving out of the way to allow the, the people to uh, disbark from that arriving service. We can also quantify whether people have problems boarding the service because the train is already full, which is in some suburban train stations. Mm. Um, And that causes, that's something that they didn't have insights before. Perhaps the most important part of this may be that it's live. Because as Michelle pointed out, it will then allow platform staff to take action. Or it could even allow us to rethink our train policies entirely. As Mike Ayling, head of the innovation team at Downer Rail pointed out, Rather than people counting, and that was that was always inefficient and, and not very good, you know, reliable. They can now do this live. They can do it straight away. You know, talking to you know, again, the operators, um, you know, particularly QR. They're talking about you know, opportunistic passengers. So, do, train comes in, people waiting on the platform. They get in, but they hold the doors because there's somebody running down the stairs to board that train, and they call that an opportunistic passenger. Now. Why should the service be held up for you know if you want to get your train get there and, and you know be there on time? So um, it, it, again, it's trying to change those perceptions and those those um, behaviours. But you can only do that with the data, and they've never had that data. And this is why it's so exciting in terms of the you know the, the operators are, 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 are desperately you know for this information because it's it's facts and data that they've never had before. This is why everybody's so excited about this technology because. They could try things. They could they could paint the platforms. They could get somebody with a big broom and shove them like they do in Japan, right? But they won't know whether that's going to work or not. Uh, and it's 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 you know just you know gut feel of whether this is the first time they'll be able to say getting somebody with a broom improves or doesn't improve. But that's 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 what that's it, so we're not we're not we're not. Help, we're not actually coming up with those particular solutions, but yeah, we're helping yeah. the operators who've been trying lots of different things. And, and, and it's really hard to you know, tell whether they've worked or not. And this is the first time they'll be able to get that insight into be able to do that. You know? This could lead to some new ideas in Sydney as well. To get people to get on and off trains faster, 
and get a couple of extra trains through Wynyard and Town Hall. So you can do your quick loading zone. You could close the doors at 50 seconds and cut off the opportunistic passengers uh, that we identify that might delay the train. And then you could see whether they're going to board the next service and possibly if they're there around the train doors, even see how long they've been waiting versus how, how long the train's been delayed. So it allows you to get this raft of metrics now that you'd be able to underpin your decision and say, look, this has led to an improvement. Let's roll it out now as a standard stock. You've been listening to Think Digital Futures, stories from the digital age. You can subscribe to our podcast by searching for Think Digital Futures on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us and leave a review. It helps us get discovered. This program is a collaboration between UTS and 2SER and was produced by Jake Morecambe. I'm Josh Nicholas. Talk to you next time.